everybody. How you doing? And welcome to episode number 181 of the John Riley Project. It's Monday. Monday, we're getting the week started here and it's two o'clock. And thanks again for everybody for joining us here on the podcast. You know, this is a podcast all about life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, we broadcast as we always do from Poway, California, 92064. So, um, you know, got a lot in store for you here today. We're going to uh, kind of explore, you know, racism, which is always a hot topic. You know, I, I've commented previously on some of my other podcast episodes. I wanted to get away from some of the politics of the current political races. So why not just pick a an easy topic like racism, right? Uh, but I, I just, I think this will be good. I mean, I, there was some recent news talking about um, the ways that Poway Unified School District are, are going to be addressing racism in the schools. And I thought this would be a really good topic to explore, um, you know, because of, you know, everything that's going on with, with our culture, with society. Um, I, I think it's great that we can address these sort of things head on. So I'm going to talk a little bit about this article that was published on in the San Diego Union Tribune, as well as in our Poway Chieftain, about how students and the school board and school officials are addressing racism in the schools. And, you know, I welcome your thoughts and comments. Of course, this is a live stream. We're on YouTube and Facebook. And so just type in your questions and comments in the comments section and we will read them on the air and we'll have a little bit of a conversation. Um, You know, we've talked a little bit about racism in the past in some of our other podcast episodes. In fact, um, I had Matthew B. Mitchell on the podcast, gosh, maybe about a year and a half ago. Um, And he's a great guy. And we talked a lot about inclusivity and diversity and a lot of really interesting issues. And I remember when Matthew was over at my house and we did the podcast episode, he was checking out all of my podcast gear because I have like lighting and a camera and the microphones and everything. And I was explaining to him how I do it. Well, he started his own podcast and it's called Find 40. And he produces episodes and you'll see the the um, the video content on his Facebook page. And he explores a lot of issues related to um, African-American community and issues involving race. And it's really good. And so I can't recommend that enough. Um, so and that and Matthew B. Mitchell, another good guy here in Poway and uh, just really proud to get to know him. Uh, he's a really good guy. And I encourage you to go check out his podcast. So, um, yeah, we're going to we're going to get into a little bit about race and uh, Poway Unified. But before we jump in, I just want to give you a few updates about what's going on in my world. Um, been really like I keep telling you, I'm working on this addition by subtraction project and made more progress over the weekend. I I sold an old um, amplifier that I had. I took boxes down to a paper shredding company and got those taken care of like six big boxes. And then I ended up uh, giving um, giving away a bunch of office supplies and books and some more clothing down to the Goodwill. And then I also had this big screen television that was actually given to me by one of my clients about 15 years ago. And um, I had intended to hang it up in my office and never did. And it's, it's been sitting idle. So I'm now giving that away and passing on the love to some other folks so they can enjoy it. Um, but all the while, just eliminating things, simplifying things in my life. And I, I just can't tell you how, how 
you know, gratifying this is. And so last night I was actually going through a bunch of my old laptops and going through and either removing hard drives or reinstalling Windows 10 and then doing a reset and setting up the project, you know, the, the computer so it can be reused by other people. And then I'm going to be taking those down and donating those as well. So just again, addition by subtraction is just so fabulous, so great. Uh, it's good for me. It simplifies my life. It, I can think more clearly. I'm less burdened with physical things. But addition by subtraction applies to some mental things too. And, and I've got a really good example of it as we go down this podcast talking about race and an addition by subtraction move that I made. Um, but uh, what else going on? Yeah, the World Series has been terrific. Um, you know, game four was just a mind blowing ending. One of the best endings to a baseball game I've ever seen. Really entertaining. And then last night, you know, the Rays came up short, but Manuel Margot tried to steal home. And so that's been a great series. And then I know after game four, I, I read a story about Hunter Pence, who, you know, who played for the Giants and the Rangers and the Astros, but he's beloved now in San Francisco. And when the Rays had that crazy come from behind win against the Dodgers, he was in a restaurant in um, North Beach in San Francisco and passing out, you know, essentially bought shots for everybody in the restaurant to celebrate the uh, not really the Rays victory, but more of an agonizing loss by the Dodgers. So, yeah, Hunter Pence, a good guy. And, um, yeah, what else? You know, I was really excited. I got to watch some San Diego State football finally. And um, I saw the ending of that Indiana-Penn State game, which was terrific. And then I got to enjoy really most of an NFL game. I hadn't really watched a single NFL game all year. But my son has adopted the Arizona Cardinals as his team since the Chargers moved out of town. So we watched the the Seattle Arizona game, and that was really good last night. And uh, went to overtime, and the Cardinals won, so that was good. Um, and then, yeah, we got one week to go before the election. I think it's going to be a week from tomorrow, and I think a lot of us were excited that we're going to come to an end on this. We're going to have a little bit of hopefully some closure. Hopefully, they're going to tabulate the results, you know, quickly. I'm concerned about. That that. I do worry about at the presidential level. I have a sense that no matter who wins, Trump or Biden, I think there's going to be unrest, probably some violence at some level. I'm, I'm, I'm very concerned about that. I'm hoping people kind of keep their wits about them. But, um, you know, we see the Poway protesters out here at Twin Peaks and Pomerado. And like every weekend, you know, it seems to get a little bit more energy, you know, mostly positive, but definitely some negative energy out there as well. And so that's what makes me worry a little bit. Um, but I, I did, you know, it's interesting is on that street corner, it used to be just on Sundays between 10 and 12 that the anti-Trump people showed up. And then eventually the Trump people showed up and they were there mostly from 10 to 12. Then the Trump people started staying most of the day. And then the Trump people started taking over three of the four corners and eventually four of the four corners at the intersection of Twin Peaks and Pomerado. Well, now... On other days, you're seeing protesters showing up for different causes. And I know there was one day where the people for Measure P showed up and they were both yes and no. I think that was on a weekday last week. And then Saturday I was um, driving by and actually I was on my way to the Goodwill to drop off some things at the Goodwill on Poway Road. And, and on Saturday, it was all like for Biden, uh, for the blue wave, for the Democrats. And I'm driving by and who do I see but Phil Factor, you know, who's uh, running for uh, Poway City Council. And he's out there with his Phil Factor sign. And, and so when I came back, I, I actually 
parked my car over there by the old pancake factory and uh, or old pancake house, excuse me, and uh, walked over and said, hey, to Phil and his campaign, he says it's going really well. And he's got a big race. You know, he's going up an incumbent, Barry Leonard. And that's going to it's hard to beat an incumbent, especially here in Poway. But uh, just love the energy. You know, when it's positive, it's all good. And, uh, you know, Phil is, is feeling optimistic. So I think a lot of these candidates, I know they're going to be relieved when we get to Election Day and then they can kind of take a breath and relax a little bit and uh, just hope for good wishes for everybody. Um, the other thing before we jump into this whole Poway Unified and racism, but I just want to make another plug here um, on Wednesday, we're going to have Alex Mathers on. Um, Alex is a author here from the city of Poway, and this is his book, uh, Building Firm and its Financial Independence with the Right Mindset. And on the back cover, he says, are you finan- are your financial choices helping you stay on the right path to long term happiness? So, um, yeah, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness is what this podcast is all about. So we're looking forward to having Alex on board. He'll be here Wednesday at two. We'll talk about personal finance and a lot of other strategies. I think this is going to be terrific. Again, I want to bring more content about how we can you know, make our lives better and improve our business lives. And so we'll talk about that on Wednesday. Um, okay, so uh, enough of the uh, the pregame show. Let's get into the, the main event here. And um, let's talk a little bit about this article that recently appeared. And it was in the Union Tribune, and it was titled Students Work with Poway Unified to fix racism in schools and Poway will create ethnic studies courses and force stricter consequences for racist offense after students shed light on campus racism. And I read this article and man, I just thought it was awesome. I thought it was terrific. And a lot of the things that uh, these students have really brought forward, I mean, they're doing it for the right reasons. I think the students um, were able to influence, um, you know, the school board and administrators. This is social activism put into a real life example and affecting change in their local community and doing it for all the right reasons. And I just thought it was awesome. And then you figure if we're going to address um, racism, I mean, what better place to do it than in schools where, you know, it's education. And so I was just thinking, yeah, uh, what better place to talk about equality under the law and equal rights and individual rights Um you know, all these Black Lives Matter protests, I think, have created great opportunities to learn a lot of teaching lessons. And I know there's like political angles to a lot of this, but if you kind of do your best to subtract the politics from it and just really think about, you know, racism, in, you know, in general and what's going on in society, you know, in, in many ways we learn as we go. And I'm going to share some of my own stories as I've learned, as I've gone as we get through this podcast. But I just think this was a terrific story. And it started out with this um, Instagram account called Black in PUSD. And it was started by these two sisters. And, you know, forgive me if I pronounce their names incorrectly, uh, Nene and Akene Okolo. And um, these two students started this Instagram account and, and a lot of other students were documenting cases where they experienced racism either at the hands of fellow students or even in some cases from teachers. And it caused a stir. And and then, you know, everyone was asking the school board, what are you going to do about it? Well, the school board's finally doing something about it. And I think it's worth sharing a few of these nuggets that were in this Instagram account. 
And one of them was one black student said white second graders told black black classmates to play robbers while white students played cops to help prepare black students for when they um, get sent to jail as adults. You're thinking, really? This is like second grade. I mean, what the heck's going on? Um, A middle school student told a black classmate to pick a shirt off the floor because it was made of cotton or else the classmate would lynch the black student. I mean, really? And then then further, in some stories, it was teachers or staff who showed racism. Some teachers sorted um, students into groups based on skin color, made racial jokes, and treated students of color worse than their peers, some students wrote. Excuse me. Um, So this is just unbelievable. This sort of thing happens. And... um, you know, I mean, you just see like harassment, cultural stereotypes. I mean, it's like, what in the hell is, is wrong with you people? I mean, why are we not evolving on this? And yeah, I know in certain aspects of society, we've made huge, huge strides to address these issues. But in other categories, we still seem to can't get out of the gutter. Um, and you think that we could evolve. But then you see second graders that are that are saying this sort of thing. And, you know, where does that come from? I mean, are the teachers teaching it? Well, normally I would say no, but here we have examples of teachers that are reinforcing it. But then sometimes you figure it's got to come from family and, you know, people that they, these children interact with outside the classroom. Um, it, it, it's just weird. And, and, you know, some people, they, 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 some people love just being assholes, right? They know that it's mean spirited and they just like to do it because it gives them a thrill. And, you know, some people have that um, perversion of feeling good about themselves by tearing other people down, um, you know, and, and there are, there are other people that think they're funny when they're doing this sort of thing. And it's not funny at all. I mean, it's just it, it's just degrading and, and wrong. And then and I think then there are other cases where sometimes people unknowingly um, continue a lot of this stereotypes, a lot of this racism without really consciously realizing they're doing it. Now, I'm not giving them a pass for it. But I think a lot of this conversation, I think, is really good because it gives us awareness and we can see these things maybe through a different lens and understand it more and really have, I think, more empathy um, for people that are on the negative side of this. Um, The article goes on to say the district will change its discipline policies to enforce swift consequences and anti-racist education for students who commit racist offenses. And I'm like, okay, but then you kind of wonder, well, what exactly do they have planned, right? What exactly um, are the punishments going to be and what offenses? But hopefully that'll be handled well, but at least we're seeing this This is going to be addressed. Now, this could have a, could take a, an ugly turn, um, but if they handle it and do it rationally, I think w- this might be a good idea. Um, they're going to implement ethnic studies courses, ethnic literature courses, which I think is great. It's not yet mandatory. The only way it could become mandatory is if the school board makes it so. But at least for now, these are classes that will be available, which I think is great. You know, I think, um, you know, students that have interest in this, students that want to expand their knowledge, students that want to have awareness and um, and learn about other cultures. I think it's fantastic. Um 
so uh, and, and yeah, this was this whole policy was passed unanimously by the Poway Unified School Board. And, you know, I'm a frequent critic of the school board, but typically for business financial side of the, the equation. This is more on the academic or, or curriculum or school policy side. I mean, I think this is great. I think the school board did the right thing. I think all five of them did the right thing for voting for this. I mean, I think you you couldn't vote against it. Um, otherwise, you would have faced um, a, a lot of uh, turmoil in your next election. But but ultimately, they made the right choice in doing this. I think it's great. Um, and the, the these two sisters, um, Nene and Akene Okolo, um, they experienced some of their own racism. And Akene went on to say as a 16-year-old junior at Westview High School, she remembered being told by her middle school um, show choir teacher to bring out her inner black woman by being sassy and sexy. And again, you know, I think I think this is an example of someone. Now I'm going to make a guess here. Uh, of a teacher that probably is thinks they're doing the right thing, um, but is unknowingly continuing a lot of these cultural stereotypes because now obviously there are some women that are like that, but most of the black women are not like that at all. Yet, you know, this stereotype gets projected on them. Um, Nene uh, mentioned that uh, she received a 98% on a calculus final at Westview High School and other students told her they didn't expect that from her. So again, maybe they had low expectations because of her race. So yeah, this kind of thing happens. And, you know, for me, you know, people might say, well, yeah, you're just a old white guy. Um, well, you know, we all kind of do live in our own little bubbles, right? I mean, you know, I live in a bubble, you live in a bubble and we have awareness of what goes on in our world, but sometimes we don't necessarily have awareness of what happens in other people's worlds. And I think this was great about this article because we're gaining some empathy. We're understanding maybe a little bit more about what some of these people go through. Um, Poway Unified began looking at how to improve racial equity in 2018 after the district realized incidents of racial slurs, hate and harassment were rising um, and they attribute it to national politics, which is interesting. And, you know, she, they, they went on to say this is one of the officials for Poway Unified that the political climate has been the biggest contributor that we've seen. And, and I agree. I mean, I think whether or not you can look at the presidential race and you can say it's a, you know, we can, you know, kind of project racism into the presidential race. You know, I'm not going to go down that path, but many people have. Um, there's obviously race that's interjected in all the protests, the Black Lives Matters uh, protests in the streets. So, yeah, it's very much, in a, you know, it's very much in the zeitgeist we're aware of, of a lot of these issues that are being protested. And then people typically will go pro or con along rate, along uh, political lines, along partisan lines is usually how that lines up. And it's kind of a shame that it does. But yeah, no doubt the political climate's playing a big part in this. Um, Nene and Akene said they also think racism happens because too much education in schools has been centered around Europeans or white people. And yeah, I think that's a fair point. Um, you know, some people say the winners write history, right? And 
you, know, you might want to say, well, the winners, you know, the the Europeans came here and conquered this land. Um, in some cases, won it through war. And then in many cases, yeah, I mean, blacks were slaves. They were not the winners. Um, you know, whites to a large degree have been winners. And so, yeah, I think it's fair to say that a lot of history has been through that lens. Um Kenne says that the first book she remembered re- reading in school about race was To Kill a Mockingbird. And that's the first time we were introduced to race and discrimination, but it was given to us from a white perspective. Um, fair point. Um, you know, I, I did a podcast back in June about Juneteenth and how it was kind of like America's second Independence Day, right? When the when the slaves were finally declared free in, in southern Texas, uh, the news finally got there and the last slaves were freed. I had never heard of Juneteenth when I was growing up. I, I think the first time I was introduced to it was from one of my employees in the mid-1990s. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of history that we just don't know about that hasn't been taught. It hasn't been part of the curriculum. And I think a lot of teachers just basically teach from the textbook that they're given. Um, and I think these are fair questions to ask. You know, is is some of our, our history, some of the literature written or uh, through the lens of Europeans or whites? I think it's a fair question, a fair challenge to make. Um, Because ultimately, I think we need to have a rational view of what history really was. And, you know, people are concerned now with fake news and um, what's real. But if you think the news might be fake, I mean, it makes you kind of wonder about history, right? How much of that is true? Or more, more importantly, how much really occurred that we don't know about that hasn't been fully documented. I mean, I think even some of the the racial, um, you know, the riots and the, what was it called? That happened in Tulsa in the 1920s. It was a huge um, destruction of a black community. Um, you know, fire swept through that, that city in, in the black area. Um, I, I didn't learn about that until probably within the last year. Why wasn't that in any of my History books. I don't remember that being taught in high school. And I didn't really take history in college. I was a, a mathematics and computer science major. But still, there's just so much that we just don't know that I think really should be taught. Um, you know, back when um, back in 2014, um, when I was a candidate for school board, and that's probably part of the reason I'm, I'm fairly critical of the school board, because I, I have a lot of things that I believe that should be enacted at the school board level. Um, but one of the things that I talked about back then was that I had an objection to Common Core because Common Core is a top down policy, a centrally planned educational policy that has the opportunity or the ability to limit um, the flexibility that school districts can implement within their school within their school district. And so, you know, in this particular case, Poway Unified is being proactive and implementing more um, inclusive, inclusive or, or diverse types of, um, of, of curriculum into their history and literature classes. I think this is great. And I think school districts should have that flexibility to do that. So I was really happy to see this happen because this makes a lot of sense because I think at the local level, um, school district and even at the school level, even at the teacher level, I think there should be the ability to be innovative, to, um, to really 
transform a stale curriculum and improve it and make it better and make it more relevant to the students in the class. And so I, I think this is terrific. Um, in addition to um, creating ethnic studies and ethnic literature courses, Poway Unified will choose new textbooks and other curriculum materials to reflect more diverse voices and perspectives. Yeah, right on. That's good. Um, to improve accountability for racial offenses, the district will create reporting forms specifically for incidents of, of harassment and will designate an administrator at every school to receive reports and investigate them. Okay. Sounds good. That one could kind of go dark side on us. Um, no, forgive me. That is a racially insensitive term, but I'm referring to it in the Star Wars way. Um, if, you know, if, if it's policed, if it can be policed properly or it can be policed improperly. So let's keep an eye on that. Um, but yeah, uh, Poway Unified Superintendent Marion Kim Phelps. Um, I remember I gave her props when she was talking about No Place for Hate. And this started, I think it was almost two years ago after we had the hate crime of the swastika on the house of the Jewish family um, in Poway. And then, you know, obviously about four or five months later was the shooting at the Poway Chabad. And uh, Marion Kim Phelps, the superintendent at Poway Unified, was pushing um, a lot more dialogue around hate and teaching students um, to overcome hate and racism and stereotypes Again, outstanding. I, I think this is precisely what we need to be seeing in our schools. Um, Nene and Akene, um, the, the, the two sisters that started the uh, racism at pa Poway Unified Instagram account that really spearheaded this whole thing, they started their own podcast right on, you know, podcasts. So they started a podcast and it's called Culture Talk. And so far they've published episodes discuss, discussing stereotypes and representation and curriculum. And their next show is about differences between cultural appreciation and cultural appropriation. Well, I'll just tell you, tell you right now, I'll just extend an invite here in my podcast um, uh, to the Okolo sisters. If you'd like to be a guest on my podcast, I would welcome welcome you uh, to share your story and the things that you're, uh, what your agenda, what you're pushing forward, the success, maybe the challenges that you're facing. I think what you're doing is great. Um, so I'll reach out to you because I just read the article this morning. Um, so I will reach out to you separately and invite you on this podcast. But I think I, I got to give you a, a big tip of the hat. Great work. And I'm really happy to see our school district doing, you know, taking this initiative. And granted, you know, here we're talking about Poway this and Poway that, but really this topic applies to school districts all across America. Um, hopefully they're taking similar action to challenge themselves, to really ask themselves, is the curriculum they're teaching um, is it appropriate in the year 2020? Has it evolved appropriately? Is it um, maybe skewed from a racial racial perspective? These are fair questions to ask. And I know this generates a lot of, you know, hair on fire and people. Some people are very resistant and some people are very progressive. But I think there's a rational way to approach this and determine if there is a way to move the needle and to improve. Because with education, we want to keep improving, teaching future generations the right way to really move forward. So we improve not only their lives, but society in general. So again, I think it's terrific what they're doing. So um, again, we're doing a live stream. I welcome your comments here on Facebook and on, on um, 
YouTube will read your comments on the air. If you have questions, you know, let me know. Let's make this a little bit of a dialogue rather than me just kind of spouting. Um, but uh, I, I do want to talk a little bit also about, you know, from my own perspective and you know, how, how we evolve on our own. I'm I, like, I'm in my, I'm in my mid fifties and, you know, my experience with race is different than younger people and different than people of other races. And so that's why I kind of want to share a little bit of my story and the things that I've experienced and how I've evolved on it. But I mean, to cut to the chase, um, you know, I talk about this podcast is all about life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And if you read the preamble of the Declaration Declaration of Independence, it talks about how all men are created equal. Um, Now, really, that means all humans, um, all men and women are created equal. And the way it was written was equal in the eyes of God. But you could also say that, you know, it was equal in the eyes of the law. At the time that was written in 1776, clearly that vision, that philosophy was not the reality on the ground. I mean, slavery existed. Women had limited rights. If you didn't own property, you didn't have rights. I mean, we can go down the list. But the philosophy was right. And the more I learned about the philosophy, the more I realized this whole notion of that we all have individual rights and your rights are the same as my rights. We each have rights to our own life, our own liberty, liberty and our own pursuit of happiness, and that we should be judged equally under the law. I mean, I think those are powerful messages. And it's really helped me improve the way that I see the topic of race. Um, but, you know, think about this. I mean, how how do you change your mind on issues when you learn about things, when you experience things? What makes you change your mind? And like there was a video that was posted on one of our Facebook accounts about the Poway protesters. And uh, in the video there, it was on the the Jersey Mike's corner at Pomerado and Twin Peaks, which is usually where the anti-Trump people are. And there was a Trump guy over there just passionately making his case. And I kind of heard just a little bit of this. It's like Democrats, this and yada, yada. I mean, how often do you change your opinion on an issue based on someone getting in your face and debating you aggressively? I mean, if anything, it's going to make you dig your heels and and confirm your original opinions. I don't think it's going to move the needle at all. You know, when we learn about things, I've found that, you know, I've I've learned the most, you know, about these kinds of issues. The more I take time to educate myself and usually it all kind of comes together for me when I can see it philosophically, rather than seeing it on an incident by incident basis, rather than seeing racism through the lens of white people or black people or seeing uh, racist policies or, you know, and we could talk about government policies like the, uh, the mass incarceration state and the war on drugs and a whole lot, you know, voter suppression. We can look at all these, in, these policies that have racial um, intentions or racial outcomes. And you could kind of piece all of those together. But I know for me, I learn when I can figure out a system, a philosophy, a, um, a whole system where everything seems to fit. And the, um, the messaging is all logical, is all consistent, and it all flows. And that has been really probably the biggest part of my evolution when it comes to understanding race and racism and how it all fits. 
and really how illogical and irrational racism really is. And it all came from really understanding it from a philosophical philosophical level, which I'm going to explain this evolution that I've gone through on this. Um, but yeah, a lot of it, you know, you had then once you kind of figure out the philosophy, right, then you test your personal experiences. And then when it all keeps fitting in the philosophical framework, then it just keeps confirming what you know and what you already believe. And that's what has really worked for me. So um, let me just kind of talk a little bit about this and what shaped my opinions about race and how I have evolved. And And like, again, you know, here I am, I'm a middle-aged white guy, I'm 55 and, but you know, I had my own family experiences. I've had my own education, a lot of personal experiences. I've, in many cases, I live in my own little bubble and maybe you live in a bubble and we only have exposure to certain things. So we don't learn it right away. We, we learn it as we go. Now, originally, now let's roll the clock back. Um, I was born in San Francisco in the mid sixties. And right around that time was when the whole white flight thing really became a thing. Okay. So back then, you know, prior to the mid sixties, San Francisco, where I was born was largely carved up into ethnic groups, ethnic neighborhoods. My family lived in the Irish neighborhood uh, called Eureka Valley, which is really the Castro district, which is like the, the now in, in the 2000s is really the epicenter of the gay community. But when you were back in the 60s and prior, it was the Irish community, uh, Noe Valley, also kind of part of that area. And back then, you know, in you know, North Beach was heavily Italian and it kind of still is to a degree. And there were black neighborhoods that were mostly on the eastern side of the city. And and there were other ethnic neighborhoods and, and San Francisco was roughly carved into that. But then once the suburbs started to grow, you started to see, you know, this this concept of white flight. And people said, well, they're escaping to get away from other people of color. In other cases, they were just escaping to get out of the city and live in a more comfortable, maybe serene lifestyle in a suburb, more of an idyllic lifestyle. And that's what my family did. So, um, you know, back in 66, or was it 67? I think it was 66. uh, My mother, uh, who was a recent widow, and me and my grandmother and my aunt uh, moved to Burlingame, uh, about 20 miles south of San Francisco. And, uh, yeah, so we, we had a little house there and kind of got started as a family. And, um, well, back then, you know, Burlingame, well, even today is very few black people, but especially when I was being raised, everyone was white. I mean, not even when I was young, I don't remember seeing very many people at all that weren't white. Everyone was, um, there were, I don't remember seeing very many blacks or Asians in my neighborhood. Um, I remember two doors down, uh, one of our neighbors um, had a daughter and the daughter married a black man and it was interracial marriage. And this was like in the early 1970s. That was a big deal. Um, and uh, I, I met the man when I was a young boy and he's great. <laughs> he was a good man. But it was the fact that it was interracial. That was like kind of... Um, you know, that, that was very like living on the margins of society. Now, granted, the world has changed dramatically. It's still not perfect. Uh, I'm sure many mixed uh, race families do get a lot of, you know, uh, a, a lot of pushback. I think the Garnier families talked about that here in Poway. But uh, 
back then in the seventies, it was like almost like voodoo. It was very different, but I, I didn't really experience a lot of people of color at all when I was really young. And then I remember, um, when my mom remarried and, uh, my stepfather's a truck driver. So by this time, you know, my stepfather's a blue collar guy and my mom worked for a trucking company up in San Francisco, but she worked in the accounting department. So she, I guess you'd say pink collar. Is that it? Um, my stepfather, definitely blue collar, like a, he was a carpenter and a truck driver. And, and I remember, um, we would drive up to San Francisco and he had a company that he worked for, which was, you know, right off of third street in San Francisco. And my mother, her, her trucking company that she worked for was DeSalvo trucking. And that was also right off of third street. And when I remember driving up, um, along third street as a young child, Oh my God. I mean, there were so many black people. It was like an eye opening experience for a, for a seven or an eight year old. Um, it was very different from when I, where I was being raised in Burlingame. Now, granted I'm in a car, I'm driving by and you know, it's, this is in a urban environment and people, there's a lot more people out on the street, walking around, engaging with other people, people hanging out, all good, all peaceful, all friendly, but it was just different, you know, than, than the suburban lifestyle that I was raised in. Um, and then the other part of this is kind of interesting, um, is when my mother worked for DeSalvo Trucking Company and one of her coworkers who she became very, very friendly with was OJ Simpson's sister. <laughs> and who's since passed away. Her, her name, Carmen, I guess, I think it might've been like officially Carmelita. Um, and my mother, very good friendship with, with Carmen. And she would go visit the Simpsons family because you know, he was, you know, born and raised. OJ Simpson was born and raised in San Francisco before and played football, I think, at San Francisco City College before he transferred to USC and then eventually went on to the NFL. Um and my, I remember my mother telling me that she went to essentially O.J. Simpson's mom's house and had lunch with Carmen and the family. And it was really cool. It was interesting. And, you know, for me as a kid, I was a sports fan. I knew who O.J. Simpson was and uh, he was still playing. Well, actually, I think by this time he was traded to the 49ers. That was during you know some of the down years for the 49ers before they got uh, Joe Montana and went on and had the great years in the 80s. And by this time, O.J. Simpson was older and wasn't what he used to be as a young as a young man. Uh, but it was a thrill for me. But it was also interesting that my mother had a friend and it wasn't just an acquaintance at work. I mean, they were legitimately friends. Um, they spent time together and karma came to our house a few times. So it was all good. And but that was kind of the beginning of having for me a little bit of exposure to people of color. And then I remember my stepfather, he had some. Uh, co-workers or other people that he knew that were black, other truck drivers that were black. And we got to see some of them. They visited our house, but still it was very different. It was um, not, it, it, the people were, they were great. It was just different, you know? So you, you can't, you know, people say they want to have a colorblind society, right? That's just impossible because you can't avoid seeing color. It's there. Um, uh, granted, I think when people say they want a colorblind society, what they really mean is that we treat people as individuals. We don't treat them based on their race. And I think that's a noble goal. And I think it's a worthy goal. Um, but I know that some, you know, uh, people of color object to the term colorblindness because you can't be truly colorblind because it's just so obvious. And 
people of color have their own experience, which might be different than what you've experienced, which I get that. I had to figure that out. I had to learn that as I grew up. Um, but then I went to high school or actually, no, roll the clock back. When I was in the fifth grade, um, I was at a parochial school, a Catholic school. And again, none of my classmates were of color. I mean, I know there were some um, Latino uh, students, but very few. Uh, they were all mostly white. Everyone was white there. I don't think there were any blacks that I could recall. Um, and then this was after the Vietnam War had ended and uh, refugees were coming to America. And our church, our Catholic church had adopted a Vietnamese family. And this was like a three-generation family. They moved into a house in Burlingame. They had grandparents, parents, and children. And there might have been, I don't know, five or six children. And one of them uh, from the family was um, introduced into our classroom. And I remember his name's Vong, last name, you know, Nguyen, you know, just a very common Vietnamese last name. And Vong came over and didn't know a lick of English. Um, and... I became friends with him, um, you know, as, and he ramped up on the English language, you know, very quickly. Um, and I remember he used to come over to my house and we would do models. We would build like model airplanes and model cars and paint them when I was in maybe the sixth and seventh grade. And, and then when I was sick, he would oftentimes come over to my house and drop off homework. Um, he was a good guy. But I remember in the fifth grade, he didn't speak any English. And when he was first introduced into the classroom, we were very welcoming of him. And he demonstrated in front of the class that he knew mathematics at a far superior level than any of us did. And we were blown away. And we're thinking, this guy's in the same grade, the same age as us. He's like from Vietnam, where people are poor and living in rice paddies. And, and how could this guy know math better than we do. But he did. And again, it kind of opened up your mind. You know, you don't want to judge a book by the cover. Um, even though he doesn't speak English, he's damn smart. And it took, you know, some of us a while to really understand that. Um, and so again, I, I had more exposure, right, to this sort of thing. And then um, I remember I was in high school and I, I went to high school in Milbrae. And back then, again, mostly white. Um, now, that the whole community along the peninsula has the demographics have changed. It's become more Asian, um, but still a white majority. Uh, but back then there were there were Asians, I remember. And I remember having um, classmates that were either Tongan or Samoan um, in my classes. I remember there were some Chinese students, but mostly Americanized Chinese. And there was one student um him. I remember he was a year younger than me, but he was really smart. And he, uh, you know, essentially was in geometry. I remember as a freshman, I was in geometry as a, um, a sophomore because he was able to take algebra in the eighth grade. And we're at my Catholic school, they didn't teach algebra in the eighth grade. So I was on the standard track. This guy was on the um, accelerated track. Great guy. Um, and he sat behind me in class. His name was Tim Kawakami. And, uh, you know, got to know him in class. I was never really friends with him, but we were very friendly in class. And then I re remembered like maybe 15 years ago, I was noticing that there was this guy named Tim Kawakami that was being interviewed on the mighty 1090 or the mighty 690. And he was a sports reporter for the San Jose Mercury News covering the 49ers and the Raiders and the Giants and the A's. And I was like, 
First of all, what a great career. I would love to do that. And I was like, Tim Kawakami, that sounds familiar. And I zinged him a message one time because, you know, you can click on the byline. A lot of times it's a hyperlink to email. And I sent him a message and sure enough, it's the same Tim Kawakami, which was great. So that was, I thought that was terrific. Um, But again, you know, we're exposed to some people of color, different races, but still not a lot um, when I was growing up in Burlingame. Um, now, the the amazing thing is, and this is another crazy story, where I'm working, I've, I've talked about this on other podcasts, I've been working on my ancestry, and I've been going back and researching my, my roots, and you know, I've gone back to Butte, Montana, where my family members worked in the mines, and I'm planning a trip to um, Ireland, probably will go when this COVID thing you know, cools off because I don't think I can get into another country because Americans are banned as I think that's true. Right. Well, um, at any rate, uh, I was doing my, my research and I would go up to San Francisco and I'd be out at Holy Cross Cemetery in Colma, taking pictures of headstones and filling in my file. But I was also doing videos and I did a video over at my Little League field in Burlingame and and then on Broadway in Burlingame, which was around the block from where I grew up and the, the community there. And, and I t- made these videos and I put them on a private YouTube channel. And only if you can access the link, will you be able to see it? And I put those links into my ancestry file so that if other people connect with my ancestry, then those videos will come along for the ride. So I can share it with others, but only if they're relevant to my history, which is kind of cool. And the whole Ancestry.com thing is great. Well, I was doing a video in front of my childhood house in Burlingame. This was probably two years ago, maybe a year and a half ago. And uh, I was doing the video and I have the video. My, My phone is on a little tripod. It's on the roof of my car. And then I'm standing in front of my car facing the camera with my childhood house behind me. And I'm telling stories to the camera. You know, it's like a five minute long video just describing things that I remembered from the house growing up. And I could see through the camera that there was a guy next door that was sort of looking at me like, who in the hell are you and what are you doing? And then he approached me. And interrupted my video because he thought maybe I was a cop or an investigator. He didn't know what, but he wanted to know. Well, it turned out that this guy, his name's Bill, was my next door neighbor as a child. And he still lived there. Um, and I haven't lived in that house since 1982. Um, and he still lives there uh, to this day. And we started talking and sharing stories. Well, he had gotten to know the family that lived in my childhood house. And was telling me about them. And then when the family that lived in my childhood house happened to come home, Bill walked over there and talked to them, introduced me to them. And they were overjoyed. And they invited me into my childhood house. And I got to re-experience my whole house. It was like like walking into a movie set. It was unbelievable to walk through my childhood house that I hadn't really been in in about 40 years. And, you know, these, this family and some, a few other previous families had made some modifications, all positive to the house, but an Asian family living in my house, um, which goes to show how the demographics of the peninsula have changed. They have become more Asian 
not there's anything wrong with it. It's just what it is. Um, but it's interesting where, again, my neighborhood, when I grew up, there weren't any Asians that lived anywhere near us. And now suddenly now there's Asian family that's living in the house that I grew up in, which is kind of cool. Um, so at any rate, um, I, again, that was a great video. I, 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 wa- I was like on cloud nine for like a week after I got to do that. Uh, walking through my old childhood house. But anyways, then I go to college and you know, in college, you become exposed to a lot of other things. You meet more people of color, but still, I'm still in this bubble. I'm kind of secluded. And then I get out of college and I work for a computer company. And then this was a big deal for me. I worked for a company. Um, it was called Knox Computer Systems. It was a Japanese software company. Um, this is a company that had about 85 employees in Tokyo of course, all Japanese. And there were, well, when I, when I joined the company, there were two of us, um, eventually five of us in the San Diego office, and they were all Japanese too, except me. So there were like about 90 people in the company, and I was the only person that wasn't Japanese. And when anyone in, in our office, you know, not just in Tokyo, but in our San Diego office, when they would talk amongst themselves, they would talk amongst themselves in Japanese. Okay, all of a sudden I'm noticing the live stream has gone dark. Having trouble connecting. What's going on here? Okay, now we're back. Okay, now we're back. Um, I've got an Ethernet connection here. Let me double check. Yeah, I've got my hardline Ethernet connection. I'm not doing Wi-Fi. Okay, so we're back. Um, but anyways, um, in my office, even in San Diego, when my coworkers would talk, they would always talk in Japanese. I didn't know what in the heck they were saying. It would be like, blah, 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 John, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, what? So I guess I experienced, I think what a lot of other people of color maybe have experienced, where they were the only one that was different. Maybe they've been the only black student in a classroom of 30 of 29 white people and one black. Well, I was on the opposite end of that. And I got, I, it, you know, it wasn't comfortable especially if it was a different language that was being spoken. Um, but I learned and I grew as a result of it. And it was very interesting. I mean, what, what our company did, by the way, is in Tokyo, um, our, our company had uh, contracts doing software development for NEC and a lot of other Japanese companies. But in America, what we did is we identified American software companies that wanted to begin to export their software to Japan. And what we did is we helped them localize the software in Japanese. We not only translated all of the menus and the manuals and everything else, but we also added functionality to a lot of different software programs um, to, you know, be appropriate for the Japanese culture. Like we, we, um, converted a lot of graphics applications and sign making applications and on its on its simplest level you can imagine that some of the things we did were like vertical writing and the ability to implement kanji characters but it was also um, implementing different kinds of graphs that were popular Um, you know rather than a pie chart or a line chart they had these donut graphs that were popular in japan we, we all helped our clients, you know, code those or advise them. We did all the translation. And then what we did is we sold their software in Japan. In some cases, we acted as a distributor. And then we also did the opposite, where there were 
a lot of people of Japanese um, ancestry, you know, people that were expatriates from Japan that were living in America that wanted the ability to have Japanese software on their American computer. Um, you know, so this is back in the early 90s where the only way you could type in Japanese on a computer is you had to have a special Japanese version of a NEC PC. So we were able to um, identify, in some cases, develop some of our own software that was uh, allowing people to use Japanese characters on a Microsoft Windows, English Windows platform. And we sold that in America. And so we kind of built a little database and did mail, uh, did our own mailing list and had a catalog that we created. It was cool. It was, it was a really good job. And I learned a ton, but I was the only person that wasn't Japanese. I was the only white guy. Um, I learned a lot from, from that, but you know, I knew when I was hired, I was a strategic hire because they needed an American that could be able to interface with other American companies and be able to sell the benefits of the Japanese company. And they needed someone that could, you know, walk the walk in America and have presence in the United States and could speak the language. But at the same time, it was interesting because I felt when I, especially when I was in Japan, because I would go back to Tokyo every, every once in a while, there was a little bit of tokenism, right? Like I was the only white guy and at fun, it was kind of fun being different and they would make a spectacle of you to a degree. Um, and, but then sometimes it was tokenism, like, you know, you were being pointed out where you just kind of wanted to be like anyone else, but you were different. But then you couldn't really merge with the society in Japan. And there was a whole thing about Americans in Japan, and they were often used as models. And um, you'd see American faces on billboards, on television, because the way the Japanese culture embraced American culture. But in many ways, you know, it wasn't like a multicultural um, environment like it is in the United States. When I was in Japan, I remember walking down the stairs into a subway uh, station and seeing just a sea of dark black hair, you know, as you're coming down the stairs. Um, everyone is Japanese except for a few people. And I was one of those few people. So I get it. I, I to, you know, in my own way, in my own experience, I kind of understand how some people of color feel different when they're in an environment, when they're surrounded by whites, that helped me understand it. And there was, I had conflicts. I remember I ended up quitting that job because I had conflicts with my boss who was in Tokyo and he would come to America frequently. And we had an agreement that I was paid a salary and I was paid a percentage of the profits of what I was able to generate but I never received those profits and I was never able to see the finances. There was no full disclosure. There was no transparency. And I always felt I was getting screwed and I always wondered why. And then I, you know, you'd wonder, well, is it because of race or, you know, is it because I'm different? So it's natural to jump to that conclusion too, which I know why a lot of black people do that. People of color will do that. They'll think that they're being discriminated against because they're different. In many cases it's true, but it's an easy thing to jump to. And I did it because I, I was in that situation. So I kind of got it. I eventually quit the job and I'm glad I did. Um, but I, I grew a lot from that. Um, and so now, you know, um, you know, since I've in my business, I've hired people of color and not because they were tokens, but because they were the best person for the job. 
I was very happy about that. And now in my community, now granted, I live in Poway and Poway is overwhelmingly white. But in my little neighborhood of there's like 19 houses in our neighborhood, the person that lives across the street from us, which is unquestionably the largest house in our neighborhood, black family neighbors right next door to us. Um, who we often, there's a lot of stories of conflict with my next door neighbor. Um, he's, his family is Asian. Our conflicts have nothing to do with the race, but just some of the, we've had a lot of unusual interactions with our neighbor next door. Um, but there are other, um, Asian families in my neighborhood. There are people that have moved here from foreign nations, um, and some, some European, some non-European. So this is a pretty interesting little neighborhood here that's different than a lot of other parts of Poway. And, you know, people will say, ah, you're a white guy and you moved to Poway because you want to be with white people. Like, that's not why we live in Poway. We live here because of the school district. We live here because we wanted to raise a family here. And this was a good place to do it. It wasn't because of race. That wasn't even a factor in our decision. Um, But uh, here's another crazy story. And this is what I said about addition by subtraction. So I used to play music in a band and a um, number of different bands. They're all cover bands. It was just like garage band. We had a lot of fun. And, and I had one, I had two really good friends in this one band. And one I knew from my old job, one I had gotten to know through music. There were the three of us and the fourth guy. The fourth guy was a friend of another of the other guy in the band. The fourth guy, he and I didn't really know each other. But we got to know each other through this band project. And I never really cared for this fourth guy. We There was a chemistry problem. There was challenges. And I remember a lot of times at practice, um, he would make comments dropping the N-word. Not necessarily because he was racist and being mean about black people or being degrading them, but he just thought it was funny to say the N word. Like it was spooky. Like you're not supposed to say it. It's a dangerous word. So I'm going to say it in this safe space in a practice amongst four guys, all white, all middle-aged white guys. But he would, he thought it was funny. And I remember my two friends, you know, they just kind of laughed and went along with it. But I didn't. And I remember they would look at me like, you know, lighten up, dude, man. It's it's just a joke, you know. And I remember thinking to myself, it's it's not funny. And I don't know, maybe am I too uptight about this? But I wasn't comfortable with it at all. And my chemistry problem with this fourth band member got to a point where I finally just quit the band. And because for me, it was addition by subtraction. Um, for me, it was, I had a lot of negative energy kind of caught up in that. And it was unfortunate because it cost me a really good relationship with the other two guys. One of them I've been able to maintain some relationship with, but the other one I haven't talked to in years. And I feel bad about that, but I always, but it was kind of, those guys were a package deal to a degree. Um, but I had to learn from that. And it was, and I'm kind of I'm glad I made that choice, not only because I stood for my principles on what I think was right and proper uh, and, it, you know, it, it, extinguishing people that really got a perverse joy out of being a racist. But at the same time, I was really happy that I made my life better by removing the negative, by addition, by subtraction. And um, it was difficult. It was uncomfortable. Um, I still have some regrets because of the good relationships I lost, 
but I feel very good about the negative relationship that I ejected. Um, but again, you just see these things where we're being taught so much about overcoming racism and being embracing diversity. Yet there are some people that get this weird thrill out of being an asshole that think it's funny. And, you know, and sometimes, you know, maybe they may be legitimately a hardcore racist, but other times they're just being an ass and they know what they're doing is wrong, but they do it anyways. So it's just amazing. Um, and then the final story that I'll share, uh, was when I was in, um, um, this was like right after the Great Recession. And my business had gone through a really difficult time, had taken a really serious downswing. Um, companies weren't spending as much money. And I'm like scrambling, trying to build business. But then you start thinking about other creative things you could do. And I know that when I was in college, one of the things that I had seriously considered doing was being a high school teacher. And I thought about it and I eventually decided I wasn't going to pursue it because the pay wasn't that great. And I thought I'd have better opportunities working in the computer industry. You know, my degree, computer science, mathematics, but I always had really good experiences with my math teachers in high school and in college, college professors. And so I thought that would be something that I could do. Well, here we are. The economy is down. Schools are always needing substitute teachers. So I said, and I had time on my hands. So I said, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to do this. I'm going to try being a substitute teacher. And so I went through the process and got, uh, I took the test um, and I, you know, filled out all the paperwork and the background checks and everything else necessary to get a emergency teaching credential. And I was hired at the Escondido Union High School District. And I went um, and taught there and I would just do substitute teaching, maybe one or two days a month. And I did this for about six or seven months. This was like in the 2013, 2014 era, which coincidentally was right around the time I was getting ready to run for school board. The, the two, the two were not linked, but it turned out it was a really good experience that helped shape me um, when I was deciding to run for school board. Well, um, I remember the first day I was there and I, I was told, you know, it was like the most simple assignment is that I was there all day, but it was one particular class. It was an American history class and they had a movie and the, my assignment as the teacher that the, the real teacher gave was show the movie and then have a conversation in class and discuss it. And it was about Emmett Till. And I remember Prior to, you know, I was told this before the night before, and I was like, Emmett Till. Yeah, I remember Emmett Till, but I, and I needed to refresh my memory and I went and looked it up and then like, okay. And, and I remembered, and then I went to the class and we went through the movie and had a conversation. It's amazing about the Emmett Till story. I mean, this happened like 10 years before I was born in the mid fifties. And it was this 14 year old kid and he was in... I don't know, was in, was it in Arkansas or Mississippi? It was in the South. And he had apparently made a flirtatious comment to a white woman in her twenties. Um, and some would say it was more than just a, you know, a, a flirt more than, and some said it was a whistle. Others said that he grabbed the woman. Um, and then later on he was hunted down 
by racists in that community and they beat him up. They shot him in the head. They threw his body in the river. It was later recovered a few days later. They tried these men for the murder and they were acquitted. They got off. They later admitted the following year that they actually did commit the crime. And then I think it was in the 90s or around 2000, the woman who was the so-called victim in this um, later admitted that some of the charges against Emmett Till were made up that he never really did touch her or grab her. Um, So the whole thing was just this terrible incident. And, you know, the Emmett Till was was the predecessor for, I think, Rosa Parks. It led to, you know, the civil rights unrest in the late 50s and the early 60s. But it's amazing that that sort of thing happened then, just 10 years before I was born. So we're not that far away from a lot of this ugliness. But again, you learn and you grow from it. And so going through that as a teacher, I was learning it again because I remember learning uh, about Emmett Till when I was in high school. And, you know, you, you remember that to a degree, but then you sort of forget the detail. Now, if you're a black family, a black person, I'm sure that's repeated to you over and over again from family and from other people that you interact with. But for me, in my own little bubble, it was never repeated. But I finally got the dose of it again as a at this time I was in my late forties, it was really good to relearn that. Um, so, but you know, in the end, I think for me, um, as I have embraced more and more, this whole idea of, um, individual rights, you know, cause some people will say there's black rights and white rights and gay rights and women's rights. I'm of the opinion we should all have the same rights. We all have individual rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That whole notion of individual rights says I don't really, I'll say in quotes, see the group. Of course, I can see the group, but I judge people not based on the group, but by the individual. It's like the Martin Luther King statement in the I Have a Dream speech, you know, um, content of character, not color of skin. That's consistent with how I, my philosophy of individual rights has been shaped and I've learned a lot. And, and when you think in terms of individual rights, it, it makes racism seem so utterly ridiculous because it's, a, it's a, just a foolish idea to have this negative stereotype, this negative, hateful view of people of color just because their skin pigment is dark. It's stupid. Now, I remember when Matthew B. Mitchell was, was my guest and he thought repeating Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech about content of color over color, uh, over content of character, over color of skin. Matthew Mitchell didn't think that that was helpful. Um, You know, obviously he sees the world differently than I, but I think in the end, we both want the same thing. We both want people to be treated fairly and equitably, particularly under the law, and that no one should suffer from racism or violence or discrimination. No one should. Um, And racism in all of its forms should be called out. Um, But the philosophy, and and again, as I've gotten older and I've learned more about objectivism and Ayn Rand, and it's really reinforcing more and more and more this whole idea of individualism over collectivism and how when I'm thinking in that, in those, in that philosophical position of individualism, it makes racism seem almost impossible to ever consider because I judge people as individuals rather than based on their race. So now here in Poway, um, 
we're having, you know, these Poway protesters are on the streets. And there was a video where, the, you know, the video I talked about earlier about one of the Trump supporters was ga- engaging against one of the anti-Trump supporters. And then, you know, they're in the middle of it. They weren't saying anything racist at all, but people driving by, there was one that was that said, die, N-word, die. They didn't say N-word. They said the real word. But I remember when I did the podcast about the Poway protesters, I generally found that the protesters were, this was back in October of 2019, were generally pretty well behaved. Now, that has changed um, as we've gotten closer to the election and it's become more emotional, more heated. But the thing that I recognize even back in October of 2019, the the people showing bad behavior were the people driving by, <laughs> dropping F-bombs, flipping birds. And in this case, in this video that was on the Poway Neighbors Facebook group, you know, just saying racial slurs. And so you think about this and and... You see, we, we see racism in Poway. The Garnier family has talked about it, has rightfully pointed out. Is racism pervasive in Poway? I don't think it is, but it definitely exists. And it should be called out where it exists. Absolutely. Um, because it's such a foolish policy. It's just so ignorant when people are saying these things. And you people are you know dropping these you know racial slurs as they're driving by. I think it's like, the guy that I used to play music with, they think it's funny. But what they end up doing is just making the problem worse and causing more friction, more strife, and in some cases, more violence. And it's just because some people are just so damn unevolved. This is 2020, man. It's not 1955 with Emmett Till. It's not, you know, roll the clock back to the, to the time of slavery. I mean, we need to move forward. And sometimes there's some people that keep wanting to drag us back drag us back into the gutter. And it's just shame. Um, you know, uh, I'm looking forward to this election being over and then we can move forward and hopefully, you know, calmer minds can prevail. Um, so will Poway Unified solve this problem uh, of racism in the schools? No, they're not. I mean, cause really a lot, I mean, we, I share, there are examples of second graders that were commenting and making racial comments to other students. A lot of this is taught at home and it can be at times a parent making an offhand remark that they think is funny and the kids pick up on that sort of thing. Um, In some cases, maybe parents are legitimate racists. I don't know, but I'm happy at least the school district is addressing it because the school district is about education and teaching and they're going to address it head on and they're going to do what they can. Now, there's, of course, there's a certain political correctness about all this, and some of the enforcement and the policing of this might go down a bad angle, a bad path, but I think there's an opportunity for this to go down a good path. And I think making these classes available to students is wonderful, and I applaud the school board for making this move. Good for you guys. Um, That's the right thing to do, and I'm anxious to see how this works. And I'm anxious to see what we learn. Now, I, I'll say it again. Um, the, the two sisters, Nene and Akene, the podcasters, they're podcasters. They have their own show, Culture Talk. You're welcome to join me. I would love to talk to you. And I would love to learn about what you've experienced, um, not only the racism you've experienced, 
but what you've experienced really in fighting the good fight and bringing this attention, uh, bringing this to the attention of teachers and adults and school administrators and the school board fighting to get the school board to approve this policy um, and then taking it even further with your podcast. I'm really, really interested in hearing your story on this because I think it'd be really cool to learn. Um, okay. So, um, wow. All right. You know, it's never, it's never comfortable to talk about race. You know, it's, it's uncomfortable as a, you know, old white guy with gray hair. I mean, people can sling arrows at me and, and say that I'm part of the problem. I don't think I am. Maybe I am. I don't know. I don't think I am. I think I, I think I stand for righteous principles. And the more I learn philosophically about the idea that we all should be judged as individuals is a righteous perspective, a righteous philosophy. And the whole idea that we all have inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, not just white people, not just black people, not just men, but also women and also immigrants from other countries. Not You don't even have to be an American citizen to have inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They're inalienable. They're for everyone. Um, immigrants, whether you're a legal immigrant or an illegal immigrant, you have the same rights. And we should all be judged equally under the law. And I think those kinds of policies, those philosophies, or that philosophy, I think is righteous. And I think the more that we embrace it, the more I think we can root out racism. Um, I think this philosophy, this perspective is very helpful. Um, Rather than seeing the whites versus the blacks and the Asians and all this group warfare, cutting through the crap and just saying everybody has the same rights. Everyone should be judged equally under the law. And everyone deserves that level of respect and that level of equal treatment from their government. If we can get to that, we're going to be 90% of the way down the path of really solving a lot of this, the racial strife that exists in our country. And the beautiful thing is it's built into the DNA of how America was formed, how America was formed in the 1776 with the Declaration of Independence and how we even had the Statue of Liberty. Give us your poor and huddled masses. All of that is consistent with what makes America beautiful. It's all built in our DNA. And if we can embrace what really made America great and take these ideas that existed 200, 250 years ago that really came from philosophers in Europe, like John Locke and a lot of the other uh, philosophers at Age Enlightenment, you can even go back to Aristotle. It goes back that far, these ideas. But even though our founders were flawed in their implementation of these ideas, very flawed, the ideas were still right. The ideas were right that we all should have equal rights. And it's been a struggle. It's been a fight. And we're still not there. We're still not there. I'm, you know, there's the, the Equal Rights Amendment for women has never been implemented. Um, there's still a lot that needs to be fought for to get us where we all have equal rights. But again, it's built into the DNA. And at, and at the education level, if we can teach this more, the younger, the better. 
I mean, teach it to second graders so they're not making these racial comments in class. I think that'd be great. So I, I welcome your thoughts and comments. You can reach me on social media, John Riley Project on Facebook um, or John Riley Poway on Twitter. Go to my website, johnreillyproject.com. You can subscribe um, on our to our mailing list. And I've got a lot more content there. Uh, so feel free to join me and participate in this project with me. Um, Okay, I have a final quote. It's a little bit of a long one, but it's a really good quote. And again, I said, as I've learned more about Ayn Rand and objectivism, a lot more of this makes sense to me. And I know Ayn Rand gets a lot of crap. A lot of people don't like her. There was just a editorial in the New York Times by Paul Krugman, like blaming Ayn Rand for all these COVID deaths, which was completely a distorted article, a terrible article, but it's easy to hate Ayn Rand. A lot of times people don't really understand her. And the more I've learned, the more I'm like, oh my God, so much of this makes sense. So I want to read this to you because it's so powerful. And she goes, she says, racism is the lowest, most crudely primitive form of collectivism. It is the notion of ascribing moral, social, and political significance to a man's genetic lineage. The notion that a man's intellectual and characterological traits are produced and transmitted by his internal body chemistry, which means in practice that a man is to be judged not by his own character and actions, but by the characters and actions of a collective of ancestors. Racism claims that the content of a man's mind not as cognitive apparatus, but its content is inherited. That a man's convictions, values, and character are determined before he was born by physical factors beyond his control. This is the caveman's version of the doctrine of innate ideas or of inherited knowledge, which has been thoroughly refuted by philosophy and science. Racism is a doctrine of, by, and for brutes. It is a barnyard or stock farm version of collectivism appropriate to a mentality that differentiates between various breeds of animals, but not between animals and men. Like every form of determinism, racism invalidates the specific attribute which distinguishes man from all of the living species, his rational faculty. Racism negates two aspects of man's life, reason and choice or mind and morality, replacing them with chemical predestination. Okay, that's a pretty heavy piece that I just shared with you. But it's so right, man. I mean, it's like people that judge people based on their race, or be, they're, not, they're, they're basing that on ancestry and predeterminism before they're born, you know, that if you're black or you're Asian, you're this or you're that. It's foolishness. It's crude. It's like, like she said, it's a racism is a doctrine by and for brutes. It's a barnyard or stock farm version of collectivism. It's the lowest, most crudely primitive form of collectivism. Racism is just idiotic. It makes no sense. And people still continue it. People like spewing a lot of these racial slurs. They think it's funny and it's not funny. Um, so anyways, I'm sharing my thoughts, my comments. I welcome yours. Um, thanks for listening to another episode of the John Riley Project. It's episode 181. Um, on Wednesday, we're going to have author Alex Mathers coming on to talk about his book, Building Firm, Financial Independence with the Right Mindset. 
This is a podcast all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Today, we talked about race. I know I ruffled some feathers, but I said in the very, very beginning when I started this podcast, this is episode 181, but I said all the way back in episode one that I want to talk about big ideas. I want to confront big ideas. I have my own thoughts on a lot of these that I'm going to express, but I also want to listen and I want to learn. And that's why I was so thrilled to have Matthew B. Mitchell as my guest. I learned a lot from him. Um, I've learned a lot from others on this podcast. I welcome learning from you. So if you have any thoughts and comments, feel free to reach out to me on social media. Until then, thank you very much and have a great day. Bye-bye.